0: My brothers and sisters, it's a pleasure to be here today. Many thoughts go through your mind as you prepare for this occasion. You want to make sure that you deliver the kind of a message which is going to be helpful. I hope that the Spirit will be with me that I might do just that. As I've contemplated what to say and have heard the music this morning, it has helped a great deal. I'd like to talk to you about eternal perspectives and how you look at life. The subject will be that of temple marriage and that eternal perspective. And What I'd like to talk to you about is really celestial marriage. Temple marriage describes the place where you go to have that marriage performed. Celestial marriage is the importance of the laws you're taught to live. So the title this morning is Celestial Marriage, A Little Heaven on Earth, properly lived after one has taken their vows of celestial marriage, and if they live the laws as they are intended. We will, with another individual and with our family, be able to have a little heaven on earth. We are practicing, when we live the law of celestial marriage, the laws which will be in heaven. We are practicing how to live with God the Father and his Son, and with our families in their presence. That to me is the message to the world of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. An eternal marriage requires, after the vows are taken, the worthiness of continuing consecrated life of happiness and exaltation which President Kimball has talked to you about. I'd like to reinforce the principle of celestial marriage and the gospel message which it gives to us. To start that, I'd like to start off with a story from Alice in Wonderland. Alice approached the Cheshire Cat, and when she did—and this is the conversation that occurred—Alice asked, Would you please tell me which way I ought to go from here? And the Cheshire Cat replied, That depends a great deal on where you want to go. And Alice said, I admit I don't much care where. The Cheshire Cat then said, Then it doesn't really matter much which way you go, does it? Upon which Alice said, Just so I get somewhere. And then the Cheshire Cat gave the answer, which I'd like to answer today. Oh, you're sure to get there if you keep walking long enough. What is the message then? How many of us are going through life today asking ourselves, If we keep going long enough, we're going to get somewhere, but not defining exactly where that place is we want to be. Somewhere is not good enough. In Alma, he stated, O remember, my son, and learn wisdom in thy youth. Yea, learn in thy youth to keep the commandments of God. That says it all. He also said to all three of his sons when he was talking to them and convincing them to go on a mission that if if they kept the commandments of the Lord, they'd be happy. And if they did not, that they would be thrust out from his presence. All of us, if we are planning on a temple marriage then, must know where we are going. I'd like to talk to you briefly about the recommend, which you will have. Before you enter the temple, you will receive what is called a recommend. and In that interview with your bishop and stake president, it is a searching interview. It's conducted first by your bishop and then your stake president. You realize that. first. They will ask, do you have a testimony of the gospel? Second, do you support your local and general authorities? Do you sustain the president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as a prophet, seer, and revelator, recognizing no other person on earth as, an author- as authorized to hold all of the keys of the priesthood? Do you sustain the other general authorities and local authorities in your stake and ward? Third, do you accept and follow the teachings and programs of the church? By that, do you earnestly strive to live in accordance with the accepted rules and doctrines of the church? And secondly, under that, do you have the affiliation with or sympathy with any groups or individuals who teach or practice doctrines which are not officially sanctioned by the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints? Fourth, do you keep the word of wisdom? including the abstinence and the use of harmful drugs? Fifth, are you morally clean? Are you free from adultery, fornication, homosexuality, and all of the other moral transgressions that confront you in this life? Sixth, are you a full tithe pair? Seventh, are you totally honest in your dealings with your fellow men? Eighth, Will you and do you regularly wear your temple garments? Ninth, are you a member in good standing in the Church? By that it means, will you earnestly strive to do your duty in the Church, to attend your sacrament, priesthood, and other meetings, and to obey the rules and laws commandments of the Church and of God? And next, is anything amiss in your life that has not been fully resolved with the appropriate priesthood authorities that should be cleared up at this time? Tenth, are you free of legal entanglements? And eleventh, do you consider yourself worthy in every way to go to the temple? Now, The importance of thinking of this recommend is is that when we begin to talk in a few moments about how do you choose that companion that you are going to go with to choose to live with for time and all eternity, the question then will be, are you sure that they are able to live within the confines of this recommend. After the recommend, you will go to the temple and you will have an endowment. Before a person can be married or sealed as husband and wife in the temple, he or she receives the ordinances of the endowment. What is the temple endowment? In the discourses of Brigham Young, he states it very briefly as this. He said, Let me give you a definition in brief. Your endowment is to receive all those ordinances in the house of the Lord, which are necessary for you after you have departed this life, to enable you to walk back to the presence of the Father, passing the angels who stand as sentinels, being enabled to give them the key words, the signs, and tokens pertaining to the holy priesthood, and gain your external exaltation in spite of earth and hell. The endowment, Elder L. Ray L. Christiansen has said, is a most important and significant blessing, and the Lord desires his worthy children to receive it. You should all look forward to the day when you will reach and receive your own endowments. Elder James E. Talmadge, formerly of the Council of the Twelve, spoke very significantly of the temple endowment as it was administered in our modern temples when he said it comprised the instruction relating to the significance and sequence of past dispensations, the importance of the present as well as the greatest and grandest era of human history. The course of instruction includes a recital of the most prominent events of the Creative Period, the condition of our first parents in the Garden of Eden their disobedience and consequent expulsion from that blissful abode, their condition in the lone and dreary world when doomed to live by labor and sweat, the plan of redemption by which the great transgressor may be atoned, the period of the great apostasy, the restoration of the gospel with all its ancient powers and privileges, the absolute and indispensable condition of personal purity, and a devotion to the right in this present life, and a strict compliance with gospel requirements. The Ordinance of the Endowment, continuing what Elder Talmadge has to say on this subject, embodies certain obligations on the part of the individual, such as a covenant and promise to observe the law of strict virtue and chastity. To be charitable, benevolent, tolerant, pure, to devote both talent and material means to spread of truth and the uplifting of the faith and the race, to maintain devotion to the cause of truth, to seek in every way to contribute the great preparation of this earth which we may receive her King, the Lord Jesus Christ. With the taking of each covenant and the assuming of each obligation, the promised pre- blessing is pronounced, contingent upon the faithful observation of the conditions. And then he goes on to say that no jot, iota, or tittle of the temple recommend or the rites is otherwise uplifting and sanctifying. So it is that we have the obligation, as members of the Church of Jesus Christ, to plan for a temple marriage. It is the parent's responsibility to teach this early in your life. It is your responsibility to teach it to your children. It should be taught at family home evening. Pictures of the temple should be in your home. I hope in your room here at the college that you have a picture of the temple. President Kimball told the story at the dedication of the St. George Temple of a mother with three boys. Their father had gone off to sea, not to return. As a reminder of her husband and to remind the boys not to go to sea, she put a picture up in her living room, and every day she stood and told the boys, Never go to sea. There isn't a mother here who doesn't know what happened all three boys went to sea. Why? Because when they looked at that picture they saw the adventure that their father saw, the wind and the sails of that great clipper ship, the spray coming up. And so it is that President Kimball has told us, wouldn't it be well to put a picture of the temple and give that same adventure to your children that they might set for themselves to go to the temple as an objective? The selection of a companion is what I'd like to talk to next. How do you know who is the right person to go to the temple with and to take your celestial vows that you have that desire for temple marriage, a desire to have a family for eternity, a desire to have a companion for eternity, and to live in the presence of your Heavenly Father? In modern revelation, the Lord says, Therefore prepare thy heart to receive and obey the instructions which I am about to give you. For all those who have this law, and revealed unto them, must obey the same. For behold, I revealed to you a new and everlasting covenant." That is from the 132nd section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Every member of the Church who contemplates going to the temple should read and study that section of the Doctrine and Covenants. Relatively few people in the world truly understand the new and everlasting covenant is the marriage ordinance in the Holy Temple by properly constituted leaders who genuinely have the authority of these keys. Do you realize that when one has the responsibility to be a sealer in the temple and has these keys that there is no one between them and God when that ordinance is performed? There is no priesthood authority between them, you and your loved one at the altar, and God the Father, and his Son, Jesus Christ. It is a beautiful and a touching ceremony. The deep underlying purpose is clarified by the Redeemer himself when he said, And as pertaining to the new and everlasting covenant, it was instituted for the fullness of my glory, that he that receiveth the fullness thereof must and shall abide the law, or shall be damned, saith the Lord God. The Lord said also in that same section of the Doctrine and Covenants, Therefore, if a man marry him, a wife, in the world, and he marry her not by me nor by my word, and the covenant with her is so long, he is in this world, she with him. Their covenant and marriage are not of force when they are dead. And when they are out of the world, therefore, they are not bound by any law when they are out of this world. Do we really realize, then, that in the Doctrine and Covenants we are told that unless we enter into celestial marriage we cannot reach the highest degree of glory in the celestial kingdom? He also makes clear what will happen to those who will never receive the blessings of a temple marriage, and that is, that that bind is for death till depart, a very sad thing to contemplate. The aim of the gospel and the purpose of temple marriage are not only to keep us together but also to make us eligible for our Heavenly Father's highest reward, exaltation in celestial kingdom, of increase in that kingdom, and of being together with our family. If I could, then, I would like to discuss that partnership and how we find them. You were here during a period, and you're asking yourself, What is marriage, and how do I find that right person? I'd like to talk to you frankly for a moment, First of all, I'd like to describe marriage as that of like climbing a mountain. And what you will do, you will tie yourself to a companion, and you'll start up the mountain of life. As a child comes along, you tie them to mom and dad, and you continue your journey. They will be totally dependent on you for a period. The ropes will hold all of the mountain climbers together. But there are many elements—the wind and the rain, the snow and the ice all the elements of the world will tear at you to pull you off that eternal mountain. How do you reach the summit? If either mom and dad cut the rope which binds them, the chances are that one or the other may fall off the mountain and you pull the rest of the family with you. The whole family falls off that gospel mountain. They won't reach that eternal summit. It will never be attainable. Let us always be mindful also that you represent possibly as older brothers and sisters. You are tied also on this mountain team that is attempting to return back into the presence of your Heavenly Father. And if you cut the road that binds you between Mom and Dad, or the younger brothers and sisters behind you, and you should fall off the mountain, the chances are that you will take one or two of your brothers or sisters with you. You can't take that chance. You, by definition, are a leader. Whittier said it best on this mountain climbing trip, Thee lift me, and I'll lift thee, and we'll ascend together. What does that mean? I can remember one moment in my life. As was described, I was at Harvard Business School. I was stretched to my capacity. In the first year of that institution, they take away every bit of self-confidence that you have, no matter what your background is, before you get there, so that you'll learn what it's like to have to achieve more than you've ever done in your life before. Pressures are self-imposed to teach you how to think under pressure. They try to duplicate real life. At one point, a mission president, John E. Carr, asked me to be an elders quorum president. It's the only time in my life that I have ever questioned an assignment. And I went home to talk to my wife. And for every woman here and every man here, the question will come in your life, when is the time to serve? When is the right time? And the only answer I can give you is when you are asked. So I went home and I said to my wife, I have a chance of failing if I have become an Elder's Quorum President. And she said to me the words which have helped me for many years. She said, Bob, I would rather have an active priesthood holder than a man who holds a graduate degree, a master's degree from Harvard. But together, as she put her arms around me, she said, we'll do them both. That is eternal partnership. Thee lift me and I'll lift thee and we'll ascend together. That's the message. You do it one on the other. A marriage partnership is not a crutch. You do not marry somebody who you think is a little higher than the angels, and then lean on them and slow them down. You develop yourself and your own gifts and talents. As she develops hers, you develop yours, and then you grow together. She has never stood in my way. The record you heard today would have been impossible. Had we not sat down before we were married, And I said to her, you know, Mary, I would like to be the president of a corporation. And to do it, I'm going to have to be a managing director or president, domestically and internationally. Do you want to go on that trip with me? And she said, yes. Ten years after we were married, I was asked to go to England. And there she was, with me. And then to Germany, and then to Spain. She became international, bicultural, bilingual, trilingual, because she'd made her mind up that we'd go together. You must sit down and talk over with one another what you need for that self-reliance. Remember, if you would, to treat each other in kindness, to respect each other for who you are and what you want to be. I'd like to tell you the story of a woman that I had some years ago as a bishop, a couple was there having a marriage problem. As they spoke with me, she began to tear down her husband in all those key areas that a man has to have some respect for himself. She talked of his inadequacy as a father, his inadequacies in the marital relations, his inadequacy as a provider, inadequacy socially for what she had expected. I asked her, Why do you do this to a man who you should love and sustain? And she said, Oh, it's much better to argue with someone you love, because you know where you can hurt them the most. And she meant it. Now, let's think about that for a minute. Can you really hurt a stranger? Who are the people you can hurt the most? Is it your roommate? Is it your companion? Is it your mom and dad? Is it your brother or sister? Isn't it true in life that while you're at this institution, you should learn how to strengthen your brethren and those that are around you and not tear them down? Shouldn't we be developing the attitude with your roommates that it becomes a natural part of you to be supportive and helpful and that your strengths and weaknesses and their strengths and weaknesses, again, as we climb that mountain together, we're helping one another. The hero of Homer's Iliad, Achilles, had a mother, Thetis, who dipped Achilles in the waters of the river Styx, by which he became invulnerable, the story goes, except for that part of his heel by which she held him. And he was unprotected. There we have the proverbial Achilles' heel of everybody in this room. Every one of us has an Achilles' heel. Achilles was the bravest, handsomest, swiftest of the army of Agamemnon, but he was slain by Paris, whose arrow was guided by Apollo to his vulnerable heel. Every mother would love to dip their children into the waters of the river Styx and give them protection. But this is impossible. We must learn to use our free agency, take our opportunity for growth. Everyone has their weaknesses. The adversary knows our Achilles heel. He knows the Achilles heels of your loved ones, your friends, your roommates, your brothers and sisters, your parents. But most of all, do you understand your Achilles heels and what you have to protect yourself from? Do you know the situations you have to stay away from and where your weaknesses are? Sit down and talk to yourself, because the secret of a happy marriage is to protect the Achilles' heels of those you love and not take advantages of the weaknesses of the ones that you know the best, that you love the most, and that you ultimately can hurt the most. In the Doctrine and Covenants, in the 108th section of the 7th verse, I would hope each one of you would write this down and put it in your pocket have it with you at all times for those moments. Therefore, strengthen your brethren in all your conversation, in all your prayers, in all your exhortations, and in all thy doings. In other words, every day you help one another as you speak, as you pray, in your exhortations, those moments— and in your doings. Working together is a sacrifice. You have to make sure that the person that you are dating right now is going to be willing to sacrifice. I'll give you one story in life that helped me learn this. I can remember a young couple just out of college. One parent gave them a home. The other parent gave them the furnishings and a new car. They had everything. They were beautiful people, and they were popular. They had everything in the world given to them. Well, you know the story. Within three years, they were divorced. They hadn't worked and sacrificed. They had leaned on each other as a crutch, had crippled themselves, and hadn't grown. And they hadn't learned the hard part. They hadn't worried about making their marriage work. How do you support your wife? What is the role of a priesthood holder? What is the role of a woman with the priesthood? Again, it's making sure that you share and grow together. My wife has taught me in a number of ways, which I'll share with you for a moment. And usually it's a little easier when she's not with me. But she's here today, and I'm sure I'll be talked with afterwards. After serving as an elders quorum president, a branch president, and a bishop over a period of five years, we moved to a new stake. The stake president recognized the great talents of leadership of my wife. In fact, I have spent most of my wife being known as the husband of Mary Hales, and I don't mind that. My wife was asked to be a Relief Society president, of which she has been twice in her life. As I have been a bishop three times, we have shared our priesthood and our Relief Society responsibilities. But the first meeting she went to with the bishop, after five years of waiting for me, she was there for about an hour and a half in a welfare meeting and a priesthood correlation meeting while I chased two youngsters up and down the halls, through the parking lot, through the cultural hall, and had my first experience. And when she came out, I had one boy in my arm and was holding the other by my hand, and as the door opened and she came forth out of the bishop's office, I had that look on my face. You know the look. I didn't have the courage to say anything. I just gave her the look. Do you realize you've kept me waiting an hour and a half? And all she did was raise five fingers on her hand and said, Five years, because that's how long she'd been waiting for me. And then I began to realize it was going to be my job to support my wife in her calling as she had supported me as a priesthood holder. There isn't a man here who can't learn from that story. There's a husband that I'm told the story of who on a Tuesday evening was putting on his blue suit, his white shirt, his blue tie. It was Tuesday night and his wife asked him, Where are you going? His answer was very clear—I'm going to Relief Society. One of us has to go. (laughs) There isn't a Relief Society present in the world, that that won't warm their heart. At the University of Utah, on an evening seminar, I was speaking to the MBAs and the senior business students. I noticed a young man with a baby sitting alone near the front of the hall. Afterwards, he came up and spoke to me. He had a few questions about his career, still holding the baby. I said, Where is your wife? He said, Well, when we were married, I promised her that she'd have the opportunity of attending the Relief Society. Tonight is Relief Society, and I have our son at this seminar. There are great moments you will have with your family, and every woman here should understand the importance of Relief Society in her marriage. And every priesthood holder should understand it. I travel to stakes now. About one out of five women, on average, are going to Relief Society. Sisters, start your habit of going to Relief Society at Brigham Young University. And, brethren, you start your habit of supporting them in this activity. It is one of the most important chances they'll have for continuing education, of feeling the self-worth, of being able to share testimonies in a testimony meeting. There will be times when your wives will say to themselves they won't be able to get through another day. There will be two or three children around the house. They'll be speaking on a level of a two- or three- or five-year-old level, and at some point they want to get out and have some cultural refinement, and they want to have some growth. So it is that the testimony meeting helps our wives to share with each other. It also helps those of you who will be alone, who may not have a partner. You should go to Relief Society for the association. It will help every woman in the Church to grow. There is a need to have experiences. You will go to Relief Society when someone bears their testimony someday that will make you feel as though life is worth it. There are two major reasons why women don't go to Relief Society. First, women do not know how important it is to them individually for their growth. And in this category, they don't know how important it is for their families and for their companionship with their husband. The second category of which falls in is that the priesthood does not support them and does not know why it is important for them. May I just give one last suggestion? When mother has gone, or your companion, or you're all alone and she's gone to Relief Society, you'll have some of the best of those memory moments with your children, some of those moments that you will have alone. Also, that's the time maybe to do a few dishes and to maybe clean up the house a little bit so that when she comes home she doesn't feel as though she has the weight of the world on her when she returns. Most men feel that the physical part of their relationship and marriage is the most important part. I want to tell each and every one of you very personally that to clean a few dishes, vacuum a room, and have all of the kids in bed when mom comes home has got to be one of the most rewarding experiences your wife will ever have in marriage. And it's a much better way sometimes of expressing, better than any other way at times, of saying, I love you. You also have to say, as we travel and as we have this relationship, what are the anticipated problems? If you don't follow the counsel which we have talked of today and have a relationship, what can you expect if you disregard the counsel of the Brethren, the presence of the Church, and those that will counsel you on a temple marriage? Measure the spiritual level of your future companions. First, if they are a member, are they active and fully committed? Are they active and passive? Are they antagonistic? Second, if they are non-members, are they receptive to the gospel and its teachings? Are they non-committal or are they antagonistic? I would like to spend just a moment from 20 years of priesthood work to talk to you on this. If you marry an active member in the temple and you marry for time and all eternity in the new and everlasting covenant, will you have problems? Yes. Will you be able to solve them? Yes. Will your chance to be better to solve the problems and strengthen your testimony? Yes. My brothers and sisters, if you marry somebody who is antagonistic to the Church or passive, I merely want to say one thing to you. You are placing yourself in a position where you will find someday you will have to choose between that individual and the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. That is a very heavy responsibility. In closing, I would like to give you my testimony—oh, how I realize the importance of setting your course to know where you are going. I ask the Lord's blessings to be with you, that you will not lean on one another as a crutch, but you'll both stand strong. Thee lift me, and I'll lift thee, and we'll ascend together. Strengthen your brethren. And as you pray each night and as you deal with your associations, please date extensively. Please know the kind of person you want to be with. Please make sure that you help those who you come in contact with that you might point them in this direction. I would like to make sure that none of you set an artificial goal for those who you are going to marry. If you say, I'll go with you or marry you if you go on a mission, if you'll marry in the temple, and that isn't what they feel inside, fifteen or twenty years from now you may have a tragic circumstance. Make sure that you help them before you get married, and that's what they really want to be inside. And you can do that by seeing if they go to their meetings and have a testimony, and if you can talk to them about eternal goals. I ask the Lord's blessings to be with you. I know that God lives and that Jesus is the Christ. I bear testimony to you that those moments in my life when I've been unhappy, depressed, or sad are when I've deviated, even in the minor degree, from the teachings of the Lord that you might have this happiness and find the joy of a celestial marriage with a little heaven on earth is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.